A lot of people are broadly aware that philanthropy has a role in their lives. Maybe you see it at a museum or a university scholarship or on the radio. For example, this episode is made possible by the Guggenmoss Family Foundation for Baritone Voices. Wow, I did not know that. I'm going to need to thank them. Uh, certainly, uh, philanthropy is all around us, and uh, that's true for affordable housing as well, but it's not always obvious. In fact, foundations are involved in addressing some of the toughest housing-related challenges today, and there's a lot we can learn from their involvement. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today on the show, we're going to take a close look at the role of philanthropy in affordable housing, what it can do and what it can't, but also what we can learn from all of the parts of the market that philanthropy seeks to address. We are joined today by Eileen Fitzgerald, the head of housing affordability philanthropy at Wells Fargo. Before joining Wells Fargo, Eileen was the president and CEO of Stewards of Affordable Housing for the Future, aka SAFE, and the CEO and COO of NeighborWorks America. So she has some great perspectives from a lot of different angles. Eileen, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So philanthropy, as we said, plays an important role in affordable housing, but I think you know more than most people realize. So I'd like to start our conversation with a common, albeit narrow, assumption, and then let's complicate that. And so that assumption is this. Philanthropy is where you go for free or cheap money for important projects. So Eileen, can we break that down a little bit? Sure, Corey. So I've been on both sides of this equation, having raised money for many years and now having the privilege to help Wells Fargo determine how we spend our housing philanthropic dollars. You know, most foundations have a focus on a few issues they fund. At Wells Fargo, we support housing affordability, financial health, small business growth, and sustainability. One of the reasons we focus on these issues is that we're committed to economic advancement of everyone in our nation, especially low and moderate income individuals and families and people of color. We're also committed to closing the racial wealth gap. These issues are core to our business. As you know, we're one of the nation's largest housing lenders and investors in both multifamily and home ownership. We also call out sustainability as a philanthropic objective in line with our commitment to get to net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So to your question, certainly philanthropy can be used for gap financing or free or cheap money for important projects. And on pretty rare occasions, we do that. However, ideally in philanthropy, we're investing in strategies and in projects that move the needle on an issue and that have an impact beyond that initial investment. So when providing gap financing, for example, we're supporting new rental homes, and that's great. But all of our philanthropy would make a tiny, tiny dent in that need. So we need to go beyond that and direct benefit of increasing the supply and to see how can we influence a much larger increase in supply well beyond what our dollars can ever support. It's kind of like a proof of concept. So often philanthropy has been used to like test and demonstrate a new approach to construction or design, maybe an untraditional use of land, essentially absorbing some of the execution risk in a new strategy or approach. The same like offlaying of risk can be used by providing philanthropic dollars for credit enhancements or guarantees. The industry sees an actual or perceived additional risk in a project or approach. Sure, a lot more equity can help that, kind of back to the gap financing, 
But working with maybe a CDFI or a developer to have increased credit enhancements or guarantee capacity can help offlay that risk with much less investment. And ideally, you can like look at that across the strategy and learn from that because you've kind of named that risk. So when we do that successfully, it can eventually change maybe underwriting standards, policy or perspectives. Oh, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so you, you mentioned that, you know, Wells, uh, that you know, your organization looks to address a lot of different issues. And, you know, your uh, one type of philanthropy, uh, one type of foundation, can you just you know, give us a lay of the land? I think there are a few, maybe a few different types of philanthropies. Yeah, sure. And I'm certainly not the, the expert, but I'll, I'll give you what I know. So there are different kinds of philanthropies and foundations. Some include like independent foundations like Ford or MacArthur or Kresge, corporate foundations like us at Wells Fargo, community foundations, which can take a lot of different forms. They often manage donor advised funds. Maybe some of you have a donor advised fund with your local community foundation. Family foundations, where that family is you know, still very involved in directing. And then there's other structures that have developed, like one example is the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, or CZI, which actually is an LLC that does philanthropy, but also for-profit investing and other things that would not be allowed as a standard philanthropy or 501c3. You know, there's also, you know, different kinds of things that foundations do. One thing besides making grants is providing PRIs or program-related investments. And some of these, what they do is use the endowment to provide very low cost, longer term investments that also have some additional risk. A distinguishing factor is that these PRIs can count against the 5% payout that foundations are required to make each year. So they're expected to be repaid, but there's kind of an acknowledgement of that risk. Often CDFIs are capitalized in part with PRIs. The MacArthur Foundation's Affordable Housing Preservation Initiative, which I'm sure many folks listening to this podcast may be benefited from, started back, I think it was around 2005 or so. And they gave quite a number of PRIs to many nonprofit affordable housing um, developers to enable them to grow their preservation activities, strengthen their balance sheet. Some foundations also provide MRIs, which are mission-related investments. And this really is just saying as they're doing their standard investing, from their endowments or their corpus, which are typically market rate investments, but they do it with a lens to support the mission and the goals of the foundation while getting those market rate returns. That's a great overview of all the different kinds of philanthropies and some of the ways that they plug in. Um, and then in, we've talked uh, before on, on the podcast about the, the many different issues are, that are out there. And so it might be worth talking through some of how philanthropies fit into that. Things like increasing supply and, and preserving affordable housing. What are the best ways for philanthropies to get involved in that? I imagine there's a number of them. Yeah, so, you know, I think uh, there's a couple ways of thinking about that. One, obviously, is getting back to some, you know, root cause issues around land use and zoning. And I think it, to the degree that philanthropy usually participates in that, it's in supporting research, you know, dialogue, conversation to understand and and get data that, you know, hopefully um, helps explain land use, maybe identifies how it's being used as a barrier. I think so that that's one, certainly kind of on the policy side in addition to research. So philanthropy typically 
unless they're, you know, outside of a traditional foundation, does not support direct advocacy, but certainly support policy and research and development of best practices. And so that's another place to kind of help lift up some of the issues around supply. And then, you know, more directly, it could be things like credit enhancements and guarantees, strengthening balance sheets, testing, you know, new construction practices, and again, financing those from time to time, which often, you know, may not be as underwritable without those kind of additional enhancements. So that's, I think, some ways, again, similar kind of things on preservation, but that, you know, credit enhancement guarantees, there's something called the Community Guarantee Investment Facility. And this is something we are providing operating support for it. We're not an investor in it because as a corporate foundation, we don't have that kind of long-term endowment in our case. But this was put together initially by Kresge and MacArthur, and it's managed by a group called Locus, which is a subsidiary of Virginia Community Capital. And the idea there is to have pledged some guarantee funding from the foundation. So they're actually putting up money unless the guarantee is called, but they have one section of that on affordable housing. So it is, again, to deal with that perceived risk and be able to pledge philanthropic backing for that that can be called upon. So there's a variety. And then right now, one of the things we're looking a lot and we're supporting as are several other foundations is some reuse of facilities, particularly with and you know the availability in some markets, and this is obviously dwindling quickly, of hotel properties and some resources out there, whether through state or federal, to help organizations purchase those. We've provided a variety of support to kind of get those moving because obviously if you can take a property and turn it around in nine months or a year, that is a great way to get people housed pretty quickly, especially, you know, our focus would be on permanent housing related to that. So several other foundations are doing the same thing and supporting those strategies when possible. So I'm curious, when you have several foundations working on the same thing, how do you all come together? Yeah, so I'm lucky. I'm part of something called Funders for Housing and Opportunity. This was started I don't know, about six or seven years ago by Ford, MacArthur, Kresge, I'm going to, Casey and Gates, maybe. And that brings together some funders on housing with a focus on opportunity. They do have some grant making they do. So we all contribute some money to that pot and they're doing some work. A lot of it focused really on racial equity and some very grassroots focus, but also on some of the policy work nationally. But it's also a wonderful opportunity to engage. And I think we have, I don't know, 10 to 15 foundations. And you know, most of those don't define them their work principally as housing, but realizing either they care a lot about human services or children or their communities. And because of that, they've realized that they also have to care about housing. So that's been a really wonderful opportunity to come together. That is interesting. And one thing that you mentioned in there is racial equity and that you've mentioned a couple of times. And certainly that's been a growing issue, I think, for many stakeholders in the markets um, in in recent months and and over the past year or so. How much of that growth, I guess, in in your space has been over the last year? How far back does that go? And and, uh, do you see big momentum in that other different than in other areas? Yeah, you know, I, I'm sure that many of the folks listening to this podcast, most of you are 
aware of the racial wealth gap, racial homeownership gap, which is reaching record highs that are not seen in more than 50 years in many communities. Now, those have been growing and we've been conscious of that, you know, in the 90s, right? But it's just getting worse and not getting better. I also think that, you know, many of you have probably read or heard excerpts from the books, The Color of Law or Evicted. Both of these really addressed some of the systemic injustices and racial bias in our housing system. And The Color of Law in particular provides, you know, really a great understanding of how discrimination and bias has been built into really the very fabric of many of our housing policies and agencies and structures and law. So I think that was very eye-opening for many people who didn't realize that. And I think there's plenty of people who kind of did know some of that story, but it has, I think, helped elevate it and really pushed, you know, the broad philanthropic community and the policy community to realize that it's not enough to just say, oh, let's just go forward. We really have to understand from whence we came. So I think philanthropy has been more focused on providing support for strategies that address these really decade-long challenges and open up more opportunities and, and understand those system barriers that are in place. So Eileen, can you talk about some of the work that you've been involved in in that front? Sure. So we have several different things around home ownership. We have a pretty big initiative with both Living Cities and then with the Urban Institute around kind of building wealth equity and thinking about wealth equity for BIPOC families and individuals with respect to home ownership. And I just should say, I'll probably use this term BIPOC. For those of you who are not familiar, BIPOC stands for Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. So that is really kind of looking at data, root causes involved in like identifying potential policy opportunities at a local level in what changes could be made. So we're working on that. We have a few other things that we're working on that that are I'm super excited about, but are not quite approved by our board. So I can't quite talk about those yet. But, you know, I'd like to talk about some other areas um, in particular that have had such a huge impact on communities of color, especially during COVID, but really forever. And one of those is, you know, related to all the eviction work that's out there. So we've been doing both support on kind of the the research and data side of that, on the, I guess, lifting up some best practices. And one example of that is we work with the National Housing Law Project, who's been really great at, at identifying some of the challenges on the ground in eviction and now is working on some you know, best practices in tenant and landlord law, uh, certainly the National Low Income Housing Coalition. There, there's been just uh, really so many organizations have stepped up to look at this and to lift up the fact that people of color are being hurt so much more in this. It's just like looking at homeless numbers, dramatically larger numbers of people of color than white people who are homeless, right? So, so something's broken in that system. You know, in eviction diversion, one of the things we're doing is supporting legal assistance organizations, about 25 of them across the country, to build their capacity and enhance their capacity to support renters. Because numerous studies have shown that renters who are not represented in court are very, very likely to be evicted. 
And it's very imbalanced because usually the landlord is represented. Also working with housing counseling agencies with, again, giving particular extra funding for outreach to BIPOC communities, but to to do work with renter households who are suffering through COVID and and financial delinquency. So um, there's really a range of uh, things that we're approaching. So let's stick on some of those challenges and best practices that you're finding through that work. Can can you enumerate a few of the challenges? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, landlord-tenant law and eviction processes are different, not just in every state, but often even within states, within communities. So it's challenging as uh, organizations look to work across states or work in multi-states because the roles are so different and, and how to kind of help support that and get to an efficient system. That being said, there's, you know, there's some great work. So a few examples, the National Center on State Courts has been working, and there's several places like Texas and Michigan, uh, St. Paul, Philadelphia, that have looked at how their court systems are doing eviction and how they can change some of their processes or bring in other folks so that those are more fair, equitable, and at the end, result in fewer evictions. So for example, sometimes that's now bringing in a, a, like a, a navigator or a, or a coordinator type person who actually helps make sure somebody can access the available rental assistance that's out there. It may be making sure they have the, you know, understand the process or it, there is a waiting period to help them get together any paperwork. Some places have, you know, mediation, right? It, it all varies. There are underlying laws that are, can be quite challenging when, you know, a renter actually has to put up money to be able to show up in court or where there's, you know, not a 30 day notice, but a two day notice. So it's a combination of how do you look at those, you know, the actual laws, but also how to help courts and the folks who work in courts really understand what's happening and are there ways to make a difference. A group in Milwaukee that we provided support for during COVID created Zoom rooms because people didn't really have the capacity to respond, you know, in their homes and have access to Zoom, et cetera. So they could come to this place and then be on there because eviction court no longer was open in person, but they expected everyone to be on a Zoom call. I think on all of us, it's just incumbent to really be thinking about you know, the process and practice we use and is that accessible to lower income communities and people of color and disadvantaged populations and making sure that we're not just suddenly making the barrier even higher than it was before. It's remarkable and how much I think, you know, we have all learned in the past year, all of the challenges that are involved in housing and eviction and racial equity and how deep they are in the weeds too. It's not just you know, big picture issues. It's, it manifests itself in the smallest of ways that, uh, you know, so much that we've learned this year and, and so much to, to, uh, to work on over time. I agree, Corey. There's a lot of details. There's so many issues in this space and things that change year over year. I'm interested in circling back to what you mentioned before, Eileen, related to BIPOC developers and how are things in that space right now? Yeah, so I think this is another place where philanthropy can play a key role, something that we're actually in the middle of doing reviews on, more more to come on some grants on that front. But 
It really is. If you know, if you look at it on the multifamily side of our industry, there's a real lack of diversity, especially in the development and financing staff and leadership. And you know, one of many many strategies are required to kind of address that. But one is to provide greater support to BIPOC-led developers. We all know it's critical to build balance sheets for both for-profit and nonprofits to be able to access lines of credit, access equity or equity-like investments. And that same lack of personal, family and community wealth, that is a challenge when we're looking at home ownership and why we have some of the home ownership gap we have is even more of a challenge for many BIPOC-led developers, really for small businesses in general, but you know, real estate small businesses are very capital intensive compared to, to some other options. So there's several strategies that could be implemented here. Improved access to networks, including like informal networks that are often helpful with financing. Increased retention of developer fees or more advantageous split of developer fees. So we hear so many stories of established for-profit or nonprofit partnering with a BIPOC-led developer. Again, could be nonprofit or for-profit on a deal. Their costs are covered, they're splitting the fee, they're getting something, but usually they're not getting anything to basically, you know, build those retained earnings, build that uh, equity and balance sheet. So that just becomes, you know, the uh, it's like Groundhog Day, the vicious cycle. So they keep doing it, but but never to get the ownership. Another solution here is like increased and flexible lines of credit. They're often not available. So Philanthropy can address some of these through grants for credit enhancements or, or guarantees uh, through CDFIs or even on you know, the developer's balance sheet, equity investments, balance sheet grants, program-related investments, et cetera. And then it's also about that, you know, how lifting up these developers as a cohort group to be able to access other more established networks and relationships that can make some of this difference. That's really interesting. I think um, you've touched on a couple of things just in this last little bit here as it relates to eviction and as it relates to BIPOC developers. And as we know, there's so many uh, issues in affordable housing with limited funds and with so many things to do. How do you judge between all of these and decide what's the best good? when going about your work? Yeah, it's really, it's really hard. I mean, it's such, it's fun, but it's really hard. So, you know, I think most foundations have some geographic areas that they either exclusively focus or they prioritize. So that is true with us as well. That's quite large. Sometimes, you know, that's part of a solution. You know, sometimes a particular approach does, you know, kind of serves more than one outcome that you're trying to achieve. So if you're working on something with supply, but it's also thinking about some, what renters are hitting and it's really trying to maybe reach out to a particularly underserved population, or there is something about that project that's really gonna think about financial health or a different approach. Ideally, we're, we're looking at like, what is it from this? Not that's just innovative. I'm not a huge fan of the innovative word. What I like is transformative. Because, you know, you can throw enough money at anything that, you know, if somebody has a great idea, it can be, and you can do it once. The question is, can you do it more than once without all of that funding? Maybe it still needs a little bit of subsidy or support. And that's more what we're looking for. Wells Fargo 
in uh, collaboration with Enterprise Community Partners last year, did the Housing Affordability Breakthrough Challenge. And this, we got uh, more than like 865 applications for what everyone knew was going to be six finalists. And they got $2 million in grants and 500000 in technical assistance, which could have been external, basically like business consulting services. So talk about, wow, a huge thing. And in all of those, what we were looking for in part was what they were breaking through on. Was that something that could be scalable, something somewhere else that could be approached somewhere else? And, you know, uh, there was really, it was very challenging. We had some outside judges, but it was amazing how often that became part of the problem. Like, you're like, this is great, but it's so dependent on a particular circumstance or a particular person, we don't know that it is scalable and transformative. So I think we're always looking looking for that. And is it, you know, is it moving the needle in some some way so that not only was this person and this community better off, but somehow we're we've changed something that, you know, will be different in the future. So that leads to sort of the question, how do you measure that impact over time? You know, when you get involved in things, what are you looking for? Uh, are there specific things that you look for with, with certain types of investments or, or uh, grants? Yeah. So I think for us, and again, you know, different foundations are different. I've been on that other side of like, oh my gosh, what are they trying to measure? But we definitely have kind of a combination of quantitative and qualitative. So we're absolutely looking for, you know, some increased production or new homeowners or, numbers of renters stabilized, right? We want to be able to show some quantitative, just, yes, making sure that people were supported in, in what we're looking to do, right? Increasing supply, expanding home ownership, increasing housing stability. But then we have this other piece that is, you know, supporting transformation and innovation. And that really is like, okay, is this thing, is it contributing to you know, ideally kind of systems change or a different approach to this. Is there something about that This is that is going to go beyond just the work of this organization and can be spread to a different community or a different project? And, you know, I think that one is um, challenging and, you know, you probably get it right only part of the time. I mean, if, you know, we should be using philanthropy for things that are pushing the envelope a little bit more and pushing that risk. So probably if you're getting it right all the time, you're not pushing it enough. Oh, that, that's a great point. We are still in the midst of, uh, in the midst of a pandemic and, and curious how your role has changed and how your activities have changed during the pandemic versus before. Yeah. So last year when, you know, we all kind of became very aware that we were in a pandemic, you know, and whenever that was in March of 2020 or so, we decided as a Wells Fargo, we decided to pivot, you know, virtually all of our grant making for the year to be COVID related. So there was some things that we had already done or committed to. So it wasn't, it wasn't everything, but the vast majority of it. So for us, and I think that the difference there was that we weren't doing as much around that systems change piece, even though in reality, I think there was probably more of it than, you know, than maybe we expected. So for us, we really focused on keeping people housed. 
And between last year and this year, we've supported keeping more than 250,000 people housed. We just thought that was incredibly important. I mean, we always think it's incredibly important. It's one of our goals. But in this situation, you know, what we knew from overcrowding and, you know, people being homeless and the impact of that on their health even more than usual was obviously, you know, literally life and death. So similarly, on our small business side, we supported small businesses staying open and actually donated all of our gross fees from the PPP program to what we call the Open for Business Fund. So all of that money then went about $400 million is going, has gone and is going out principally through CDFIs and some other TA organizations to keep businesses open. So that was really, so that's what we were about, like how we do that. As we did that, we got deeper into, for example, legal assistance in a way that we hadn't, you know, done before. And I think became so much more aware of these systemic injustice and really root, just challenging problems across the country in eviction and eviction diversion. And so, you know, this year we're building on that. And again, some of these are still kind of under approval, but really going deeper to say, okay, what can we do to try to make this system kind of more fair and just on both sides of the equation, right? A, A system that works, works for rent tenants and works for landlords. So it's, that was, you know, a place where we started to be like, this is just to, to help people and then moved to that. We also did things like gave support to many nonprofit, especially on the the rental side to support their, you know, just their properties as, as everyone was transitioning to, you know, massive cleaning. And that was a different kind of housing stability. And then we um, did a lot of work on some policy work. There's a exciting housing crisis collaborative. They have focused mostly on rental. It's from many of the, the top research organizations and, We really wanted to support them because, I mean, this is like an experiment those of us in housing are never going to see again, right? This much money out there to try to provide support. So what can we learn from that in a real-time basis? So we provided money last year. We're going to continue doing that because they've been able to get, really get in there, look at data, look at best practices uh, among, you know, how emergency rental assistance and other programs were being implemented. There's so much impactful work over this last year and just as you would want. And uh, and I imagine you had a plan kind of going into the pandemic that would have looked a little bit different. As you look forward as to the opportunities that you have in the future, is it a shifting that's permanent? Where do you think see things being impactful as we move more and more you know, beyond the pandemic and into the future? Yeah. So I think last year we didn't do very much on supply. And so we've started to, that's one of our four kind of focus areas are increasing supply, expanding home ownership, especially for people of color, increasing housing stability and supporting transformation and innovation. So we have definitely increased supply, our efforts on that front this year and what we're putting in there with a significant focus on BIPOC developers, but also this uh, reuse And we, you know, that will continue to grow some in the next year. So that was probably the place that we did a little more trade-off to increase that, to put, you know, even more money on housing stability. But one of the areas that we're definitely that, and I think the other one that we're now going a little deeper and expect to go much deeper on in the coming years is kind of on the intersection between housing and climate, 
both from an equity perspective, but also like how how do we really achieve decarbonization? Wells Fargo has a commitment by 2050 for zero emissions from greenhouse gases. You know, we all know that the housing stock is really a significant contributor to that. And housing stock is older and especially the affordable housing stock. I mean, we're all very excited about, you know, any new property that goes up. But most people in affordable housing are, whether it's, you know, regulated or subsidized or not, and are living in older properties. So we're looking at both the single family and the multifamily side there. Right now, we're definitely in the what can we be supporting that, you know, is testing things, trying to see what's worked. Honestly, the single family side's probably further behind in many ways because of, you know, the impacts of QAPs and everything on green communities and energy efficiency. I think on the multifamily side, it's, you know, a lot of the challenges of how do you get to building electrification is probably even larger. So, and in all of that, you know, we get back to racial equity and, you know, whether it's the buildings, the location, the resilience in the communities, the infrastructure, we know that, you know, many low-income communities and communities of color, you know, will have the potential to be so far left behind here. So again, trying to think about how do we do that? It's a very big area. So I think with all these things, you you try to get somewhat more focused and we're still in the process of like, okay, where is it that our philanthropy, you know, can be impactful here and help move that needle? Yeah, well said and certainly a challenge for all of us in, in this industry. You know, how, how do we work from our, from our place in the industry to have a great impact? Eileen, thank you so much for, for joining us today. This is a great conversation. Really, uh, really enjoyed hearing about everything that you're doing and everything that philanthropy can do. Well, thank you so much for having us. I really appreciate it. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production manager, Melissa Bosma, editor, Stephanie Heston, and audio producer, Dalton O'Colla. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.